Thank you, worship team. Good morning. How are we? Why do you look so happy? Man, it is exciting. It is. Ex- do I look happy? I am happy. So excited to be here with you guys. This is a special moment in the Solid Rock story. Again, if you're joining us online, we welcome you. We wish you were here with us, but we're thankful that you are connected through the internet. Um, this is a monumental moment in the Solid Rock story, and I'm just so thankful to share it with you guys, the Solid Rock family, and all of our visitors. Uh, we're glad you're here as well. And, uh, and one of the questions we've been asking now for months, if not years, is the question, how do we move from one box to another, one space to another, and still retain what it means to be Solid Rock Church? It's a question you've been asking. It's a question the elders have been asking. And, uh, and, and, and with that comes some sense of maybe even apprehension or fear that by moving from one space to another, we would somehow become something different. And really, the, the, the larger question is, what does it mean to be the people of God, right? Regardless of what space you're in, where you are geographically on the globe, let alone on this campus, whatever that answer is, is the same answer to the question, how do we retain what it means to be Solid Rock Church in this space, in this box, as we move forward into the future God has for us. So we've made it to a really unique place in the story of the nation of Israel. And from where they are, I think we will glean um, not only wisdom, but even a little bit of conviction today on where we need to anchor ourselves, our identity, not just as a church, but individually as the people of God. Because it's not just about moving from one space to another. It's about being God's people on the earth. It's as much about what we do outside of these walls as it is about what we do inside these walls. So we're going to be in Joshua chapter 8 today. If you want to go ahead and grab a Bible and turn there. If you don't own a Bible, we put Bibles under the seats around you. And that's our free gift to you. We want you to take that home with you. So nobody's going to tackle you if you take off carrying one of those Bibles. Those are there for you. And so we think about the nation of Israel and really all the different changes they've gone through since the beginning. I was recounting some of this um, this week as I was thinking about the nation of Israel. It started as really just a calling from God to one man Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, somewhere up in the northern part of the Fertile Crescent was this man named Abraham living with his father, uh, with his wife uh, Sarah, and she was barren. They were not able to have children, where God first speaks the promise that would become the nation of Israel and says to Abraham, not only are you going to have many descendants, a lot of children, but your descendants will become a great nation. The book of Genesis really captures this this couple um, having this miraculous birth, and then from there it becomes this large family, and before you know it, it's a small nation. But then we find this small nation in the book of Exodus in captivity, in slavery, in Egypt, uh, where they, they don't remain small, right? They thrive, they grow, and they blossom in number, and, and yet they're still under the bondage of slavery. And then from there, God rescues them from slavery and takes them out into the wilderness. And I was thinking about the journey through the wilderness, how it really it was a, it was a journey of, of poverty of sorts. Like God was all the way saying, hey, I'm just going to give you what you need for today. No extra. Day after day after day just enough food just enough water just enough shelter right to survive today and then that journey went on 40 years in the wilderness all the way up to the Jordan where they finally crossed over into the promised land this land that had plenty and the lesson God spoke to them as they crossed over was this I hope you've learned this Israel man does not live off of bread alone as manna was was replaced with abundant provision God spoke and said listen I hope you've learned this It's not about what you can do for yourselves, nation. It's not about what you can provide for yourselves. But it's about your trust in me that I will provide for you everything you need. 
And so then we made it to uh, the Battle of Jericho, chapter 6, this victorious battle where the nation of Israel didn't really do anything but worship, and the city was defeated. And then they roll into the next city, and we looked at this last week in Joshua 7, uh, the battle of Ai. The first attempt here was a failed attempt because of the sin of Achan. Sin had, uh, Achan had um, disobeyed God in Jericho, and he had taken some of the, the things that um, were from the temple, and he had taken some of the precious things, and he hid them in his tent. And because of his sin, uh, the nation of Israel's first attempt on Ai failed. And we looked at that last week, how hidden sin in our lives corrupts not just us, but all the relationships around us. And so then what happens then at the beginning of chapter 8 is God calls the nation of Israel to take a second shot at the city of Ai, and they win victoriously. And so we're going to pick the story up in Joshua 8 right after this battle, because what happens next is a really special moment. It's really a, a watershed moment or an anchoring moment for the nation of Israel. Because, see, the instructions that God gave through Moses back in Deuteronomy 27 have yet to be fulfilled. Where God said, when you finally enter into the land, there's a geographical place I want you to go to. And I want you to go to this mountain, and I want you to do some specific things. And so this is where we're going to pick it up now in Joshua chapter 8. If you're following along in your own Bible, we'll begin in verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded uh, the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. So this was a really special moment uh, in the nation of Israel because it's something God had told them to do. Again, before they had ever entered the promised land, Deuteronomy chapter 27, God said through Moses to the people, when you get there, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to a specific place. And we've read about Mount Ebal so far. And there's going to be another mountain we're going to read about, read about. And essentially where they're headed to is about 30 miles north of Ai, this last city that they have, that they have victoriously captured. And so they're going to go marching 30 miles north to this valley of the city of Shechem. And Shechem sits between these two mountains. And it's, it's really um, a, a beautiful scenery because it's here from a geographical perspective, you can survey most of Israel. And so this was a really special place God had called them to go to, uh, somewhat symbolic of the whole land. As they, as they climbed Mount uh, Ebal, they were able to look around 360 degrees and see the promised land. What was also cool about this is this, this city of Shechem sat in the valley between the two mountains, and it made like this natural amphitheater. And so God, in Deuteronomy 27, again, before they ever showed up, said, hey, when you get there, I want you to take the clans and the tribes of Israel, and I want you to divide them in half and put half on one mountain and half on the other. And you have this amazing kind of amphitheater place for God to speak. Well, what we note here, first of all, is that God calls them to build an altar of uncut stones. And I'm like, what's so significant about that? Why does it matter if they're cut or not? What's so important about... Right, giving this warning or this instruction to the nation of Israel that the altar you build to me shall be an altar of uncut stones. So I went back to Deuteronomy 27, kind of dug around and all the things that God had said. And, and actually in verse 15, he gives some instruction here. Deuteronomy 27, 15, he says this. He says, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman. 
and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. So this is a really specific instruction that God gives as they build this first altar here in this area of Shechem, uh, where God says, listen, as you build this altar, make sure, see to it, that nobody starts getting crafty or skillful and starts to carve on these stones. And what we see is that over and over again, the people of God, when they begin to add to the things of God, begin to craft things with their own hands, what tends to happen is the glory tends to shift away from God and onto man. You see this like in the tower in the city of Babel, right? Man sat out to build a great name for himself and crafted this amazing city. We see this over and over again. The nation of Israel, whenever Moses is getting the the Ten Commandments, he comes down from the mountain to find what? The nation of Israel had turned and done what? Had carved some images, some, some golden calves and began to worship. It's actually in the Ten Commandments that we realize that God takes this very seriously. In the book of Exodus, the first four commandments are commandments about worship. Listen to Exodus chapter 20. You shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So God takes very seriously when man begins to get involved and begins to create things with his hands, And the worship begins to shift away from the glory of God to the glory of man. Now you see where I'm going with this, right? As excited as we are about being in this building. At the end of the day, it's just sheetrock. It's just paint. It's just concrete. That new smell will go away. I had thought about um, the, the burning bush moment and going there today where, where God speaks and says, hey, take off your shoes Thought we could just leave all of our shoes at the door. And, but I was like, no, nah, let's don't mess with the smell just quite yet. But, right, this building that is a new building today will be an old building tomorrow. And if our excitement is rooted in sheetrock and carpet, the excitement will do what? Will diminish and go away. You see how easy it is for our worship to shift away from the glory of God to the glory of man? And so for the nation of Israel, as they begin to build this altar in Shechem, this, this, the instructions were specific. Joshua, see to it that no one carves a stone. Just stack them as I created them and build an altar to me. Well, the two things that they offered there by way of worship, one was um, this burnt offering, and the second was the peace offering. These are, these are really significant things. See, the burnt offering was, was an expression of submission to God's will. Every time you offered up a burnt offering, Almost always there was an animal sacrifice, and what was being spoken um, to the people and really committed to God was, if we ever fail to submit to your will, so be to us what has happened to this animal. Right, that's a big deal. Right, to offer a burnt offering was more than just creating this aroma that was supposed to be pleasing to the Lord. It was actually expression of submission to God's will, saying, God, as your people, if we ever, if we ever drift away from submitting to your will, so be to us what has happened to these animals. And the next was the the peace offering. The peace offering was an offering of thanksgiving, kind of like our thanksgiving every year. It was a time to stop and to take inventory on the goodness of God, all that God had provided, all that God had done. 
And so here in Shechem, between these two mountains, the nation of Israel begins to gather in this beautiful amphitheater, the backdrop of which was the, the promised land. They build this altar of uncut stones to offer their worship to the Lord, their burnt offering, submission to God's will, and the peace offering, thanksgiving for all that he had done. Now think about that. Think about how many times the nation of Israel wasn't thankful. How many times they complained. We don't have enough food. Take us back to Egypt. God, where are we going to get water? We'd rather be slaves. Even in the promised land, when they, they fail in battle to AI, there's this, this sentiment of, God, take us back to Egypt. And yet, here they come before the Lord to say, you know what, God? We are thankful people. We acknowledge that we've had some moments of complaint. This is where I get like, kind of honest with you guys and confess my sins. <laughs> it's taken a while to get in here. And it hasn't been without frustration, for me at least. I can't speak this on behalf of you. There were moments where, you know, just the flesh got the best of me, and I was like, we're going to open without a certificate of occupancy. Let's see the city shut us down. We'll go march around the city building seven times and see what happens. You know, I confess that because, you know, in our flesh, we want to make things happen. We want things on our timetable. We want things to, to be on according to our plans. But if we're truly going to worship today, we're submitting ourselves to God's will, which includes his timeline, and we are we're exchanging our frustrations for gratefulness. We're saying, Father, we are thankful. So those are three things that happen there in Shechem, but the, the most important, the thing that the watershed moment hasn't happened yet, the thing that anchored the nation of Israel as the people of God has yet to take place. Because see, back in Deuteronomy 27, there was one more instruction that was given. In verse 8 of Deuteronomy 27, I'll just go ahead and back up to verse 6. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones. You'll sh you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings. And you shall eat there. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Verse 8. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. There's something significant about the written word of God. In addition to this amazing altar, in addition to this peace offering, in addition to the, the burnt offerings, the main thing they are going to do has to do with the written word of God. So we go back to Joshua 8. Let me read it this way. 32, here's what they did. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on these stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel... Sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Half of them in front of Mount Jerusalem, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. So here's what happens. You've got Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Half, half of the nation of Israel on one, half on the other. And in the middle of this amphitheater, you're going to have Joshua and the leaders of Israel reading the law of Moses, reading the written word of God. And every time they read a blessing, the people on the, on the side of Mount Gerizim were supposed to respond with, Amen. And then as they read about the curses, the people on the other side of the mountain, Mount Ebal, 
were to respond, amen. Now, this is the, the, the Hebrew word, imen, which is where we get the word amen, right? And so some of you kind of are familiar with this word. Maybe you use this word. Where are my, where are my ameners at? Just raise your hand. I, just, I, I know where you were in the old space. I just need to know. Thank you. So what does that word mean? What was this nation shouting as the word of God was written? Well, in just a kind of a simple kind of definition of words, it meant to, to affirm or confirm or support what was being said. So if I say something and you affirm, you say, amen. But even deeper than that, this word from the Hebrew language also was a commitment to uphold whatever was said. So you can't just say, amen, preach it. It also means, and I'm going to go live it. You with me there? It's a little heavier, isn't it? It's more than you just cheering on the guy on stage. It's saying, not only do I affirm what you are saying, but I commit to uphold it. I commit to live it. And so try to imagine this moment, this amazing amphitheater scene. And as Joshua is there with the priests and the elders, and they're reading the written word of God out loud. And one side of the valley they hear, amen. And then they read about the curses on the other side, amen. And try to imagine this moment for the nation of Israel. What God is doing here is he is anchoring the nation of Israel in his written word. Regardless of where you go, Israel, this is what defines you as my people. If you ever forsake this written word, you forsake me. If you ever violate, if you ever drift from it, you lose sight of it. Right? And you read the Old Testament, the rest of the story, and we see this play out, don't we? In moments of faithfulness and obedience to God's written word, the nation of Israel flourishes. They're blessed. They thrive. God is glorified. But as they begin to drift and lose sight and, and fail to read it out loud, and what happens? They begin to drift into rebellion. They begin to take the Lord's name in vain. They begin to carve images of worship. They begin to go after pagan gods. And we see the curses of God on them. Now, what, here's what happens next. Verse 34, and afterward, he, this is Joshua, read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. We read about the law or the the writings of Moses, that's the first five books of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You think I go long on Sundays. So Joshua begins to read all of the written word that God spoke through Moses there in Shechem, in the valley between these two mountains, anchoring the identity of the nation of Israel as God's people in his written word. Now, what's so important about the commandments of God? I think one of the misunderstandings about the commandments of God is that it's simply just a list of do's and don'ts. And we fail to see the heart behind the commandments. We break a commandment, right? And then all of a sudden we begin to feel guilty or shameful and God doesn't like me anymore. To understand the, the, the commandments and the heart behind the commandments, you have to first think about what it means to be a parent and give rules to your household. Why do you give rules to your household? Keep them safe, to try to create peace and quiet. But more importantly, why do you give rules to your children? Isn't it to shape their character to become adults? Isn't that why you teach them to be honest and not to steal and to be responsible and to clean their room and to set their clothes out and to make their bed and 
helping the lawn, right? We want them to know how to do those things, and we want to shape the character of who they are going to be. That's what the commandments are for us. The commandments are a written expression of what it means to be God's people. We were created as image bearers. Wherever we go on the face of the earth, we were created to reflect the image of God. And so the commandments instruct us on how to be image bearers. Think about that. In a similar way, parents, you want your children to grow up and become some image in your mind of of a productive adult. More than that, what God is doing with his people through the commandments, he's shaping our image that we would reflect him. And so as God sends the nation of Israel out into the promised land, he does so by what? Reminding them that they are image bearers. Be faithful to your spouse. Why? Because God says, because I am faithful. That's what it looks like to reflect my image. Be honest in all that you say. Why? Because I'm honest in what I say. And when you're honest, you reflect my image. Don't covet. Why? Because I don't covet. Be a reflection of my image. I'm satisfied in what I have. I'm satisfied in in all that I am. And so as you obey the commandments, you are reflecting back to God and to the world what God looks like. And so here in Shechem, they read through the commandments. Now, This is not just a time for us as a church to stop. This is a time for each of us as individuals to stop. Some of you are visiting with us today. Some of you, this is your first Sunday here, and you're you're debating whether or not you're going to come back. I hope you do. For those of you who call Solid Rock your home, we can't just talk about what it means to be a church as a group. We have to think about it individually. We see clearly that to be the people of God, to be the same church over there that we are in here, regardless of where we gather, our hearts have to be anchored in the written word of God. We can't stray from that. When we hear it read, we're to to say amen. Why? Not just because we agree with it, not just a grunt of affirmation, but to say, once again, I submit to it. I desire to uphold it. I desire to live by it. But what does it mean for you individually? Is your life anchored in the written word of God is it because see we can't be the people of God until each of us individually is first anchored in his word are you with me it's not just a group exercise it's not just what we do when we gather together it informs what we do when we get together right we talk about that often the word of God should determine what we preach and teach the word of God should determine what we sing we sing so many songs rich with scripture the word of god should even direct how we worship and how we pray do you know that god gives you instruction on how to pray and how to sing the word of god even instructs our fellowship when we walk out of these doors and we mingle out in the lobby we have instruction on what to do but what does it mean for you and i individually you think about what the word of God means to his people. We go to the New Testament. A couple of places I want to read from, descriptions of how God's people are to interact with his word, what God's word is to mean to us. I go to the book of 2 Peter. I want you to listen to this description of God's written word. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And Peter's rehashing that transfiguration moment. And we didn't make that up. We weren't intoxicated. This really happened. 
Then he goes on to say this. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. To which (laughs) you would do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's Peter's explanation of the written word of God. How it came to be, what it means. We go to... Paul's words to young Timothy, a pastor, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We read this. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Salt Rock Church, that's what we're to do in this place. To continue in what we have learned and what we have believed. Knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture. All written expressions of God's word is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So all throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, the nation of Israel, the church, all anchored in what? The written word of God. How do we retain what it means to be Solid Rock Church? How do we make sure that as we move from one space to another, that we are the people of God regardless of where we meet? Our souls, our hearts, our minds have to be anchored in the written word of God. It's why in our services we have an elder come out and read the passage for the day. Before I get up and speak or somebody else gets up and and speaks, before we add words to it, we want you to hear it like uncut stones. From the Lord as he spoke it. Now I want to end today in a little different way before the worship team comes back out. First of all, I'm just going to throw out a few questions for you to think about. First of all, I want you to just think about your own life and, and how would you answer this question to yourself? Is my life anchored in the word of God? And if you're not quite sure how to answer that, you're like, well, I don't know sometimes. How would the people who know you best describe you? Would they say that you live as a person? I'm talking like spouse, coworkers, close neighbors. You live as a person who submits their life to the written word of God. Second to that, I want to ask this question. What are some practical steps you can take this week? Man, I'm getting on an airplane. I'm going to Shechem. That's where I'm going, baby. I'm going to read all five books of the Old Testament out loud. Hey, that would be awesome. But what are some practical steps you can take this week to anchor your life in the written word of God? So here's how I want to I wrap up our time today. I want to allow God's word to guide us as we pray together. Psalm 19 is a beautiful psalm where the psalmist expresses the value, the, the precious nature of the word of God. And as I pray, I'm going to read pieces of Psalm 19. Because I'm praying, the worship team's going to come back out, and then we're going to respond. And you may be here today, and, and you came for the excitement of the building, but in some way God has spoken to you or caught you off guard in, in a good way, and you don't know what to do with that. Like, who do I talk to? 
Well, we're at a place in our journey where our prayer partners are going to be available. So at the end of the service, you can grab a prayer partner. They'll be standing at the back. They'd be honored to talk with you and pray with you. We actually have new prayer rooms. You can go spend some time in there as well. But let's, let's prepare to respond. Like, let's not just be hearers of the word saying, amen, preach it. Let's respond to God's word with a commitment to uphold it. Okay, so let's pray together. Whatever your posture of prayer is, if you're a person who, who bows and closes your eyes, I mean, close your eyes and bow your heads. If you want to lift your hands, you can do that. However you normally pray with us, I encourage you to do that. As I read from Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Father, we believe that, that that souls are revived by your word. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Father, we believe that. True wisdom comes from your word. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Father, may our hearts rejoice more in the power of your word than we rejoice in the newness of a building. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. Father, would you enlighten our eyes? The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, and the rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. Father, that's what we declare as your people. Father, your commandments enlighten our eyes. Your rules lead us not just into righteousness, but into salvation. And as the psalmist writes, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter than honey. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. Father, we believe your word. Father, regardless of where we meet, regardless of how many people gather together here at Solid Rock Church, may we be anchored in your word. And Father, today we acknowledge that we can't just declare that as a group. We have to first believe it and uphold it individually. So, Father, I'm praying over every person in this room, every person listening or watching online, that, Father, this would be a watershed moment, an anchoring moment, just as the nation of Israel gathered on the mountains of Shechem and said, Amen. Father, may we do that individually today, not just agreeing with your word, but committing to uphold it and to live by it. Father, that's our prayer for each person here, and that's our prayer for our church. We ask that your spirit would now move now in this place. Move through our hearts. Convict us of sin. Lead us to healing. Speak to us, O God, we pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.